you know, what we're fighting for in terms of black people in cryptocurrency is more of what the cypherpunks had in, in line of this ability to have this free commerce because we're already enslaved. Hello and welcome from the new home of Bitcoin and blockchain technology, Peckham. Yeah, I said it. This is the Genesis Block Education podcast and I am Bitcoin by Malx. So before I start, I just want to say a big thank you and show my appreciation to everybody who downloads or listens to these podcasts because sometimes these podcasts be a bit long. So thank you for really spending your time uh, and showing your support. Now on to today's show. So it's October in the UK, which is Black History Month for us. Well, for me, Black History is all year round. I don't get a month off. But if the Royal Mail can commemorate Black History Month by painting all post box black, the least I can do is do a show for Black History Month. So in today's interview, I'm talking to Miss Deirdre Ramsey McIntyre, who with a background in education and journalism, co-founded and launched the Black People and Cryptocurrency Group. Now, the prime objective of this group is to educate the global black community, so on the African continent, in the Caribbean, in the Americas and diaspora, on all things blockchain and cryptocurrency related. This group has been around since 2018, and has around 10,000 members from around the world, all sharing information on a myriad of topics, such as investing, mining, saving, and debating blockchain-related topics. The long-term mission of the group is to act as a launchpad or an accelerator for black-led blockchain startups. So I came across Deirdre in around 2018. She was on a YouTube video on a panel where they were talking about blockchain and cryptocurrencies, and I was super impressed around the way she broke down and articulated what blockchain technology is. So mind you, this was at a time where Bitcoin had just tanked after the sort of the 2017 boom. I was wounded and I was looking for answers. I wanted to know what had I invested in, what had I put my money in, and I just came across this video. So as a result, I, I started to stalk Deirdre. Um, I shouldn't really say this on record, but um, and I reached out to her and I said, uh, would you mentor me? And she turned me down. <laughs> but as a consolation prize, what she did say was join my group, uh, the black people in cryptocurrency, and you'll learn all the information you need to know about blockchain. And so I did. So Deirdre is a pioneer. She's an innovator. She's a pan-Africanist. She's also one of the few black females to witness firsthand on the inside, the dot-com boom of the 2000s. Digi is here to challenge the status quo, push diversity in tech, and to ensure that institutional racism, which was so apparent in the late 2000s dot-com boom, is not flowing into the growing blockchain industry. Finally, Digi is an OG and she's a New Yorker. So she says exactly what is on her mind. So I guess I'll leave it there. Enjoy the interview. So Deirdre, how is your day? How are you today? I'm doing well. I am alive. That's something that you have to say in 2020 nowadays. <laughs> you say that you're alive. If you're alive, you're doing just fine. Amen. It's a little crazy over here, but uh, we're good. Just how is life in New York with, uh, I guess, COVID, elections? How is it? How's everybody's mental state at the moment? Well, 
next to New York and, and New Jersey is like the, the gateway to New York City specifically, not just the state of New York. So uh, we're sma- our state is smashed between Philadelphia and Pennsylvania sure. and, and New York City to the, to the north. And uh, as New York City goes, usually the state of New Jersey goes because, uh, you know, New Yorkers have the tendency to hit the state first if they're heading on their way further south or just want a vacation you know, on the Jersey Shore, the infamous Jersey, Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore. Yeah, of course. New York, New York City folk. New York. But I'm a native New Yorker. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, part of, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were we pretty much uh, hit our lockdown phase kind of earlier than the U.S. and the United States, with the exception of probably Washington State, which is way over on the West Coast. Um, we locked down uh, middle of March. Yeah. And, uh, you know, schools were remote, companies, you know, everything shut down. And then we were actually among the slowest to open back up, even though our rates and our, our, are kind of low. But the respective governors and mayors, uh, you know, are constantly threatened to shut us back down because they're watching those numbers. Because we hit hard when, when you know, and very much unprepared mm. when um, the numbers mm. started spiking in, in March, April, and May. Uh, before it started hitting a downturn in July. So I uh, caught everyone off guard. We had to call people from other states to come and, and work in our hospitals. So, you know, it was very alarming. So they're, because of that experience, they're very tentative in reopening. But, you know, there's the pull of the business side. You know, people's entire livelihoods are disappearing uh, um, terrible. in front of their eyes. So you've got that pull of, okay, well, you know, we don't necessarily have a, a, a government that, that is leery of quote-unquote European socialists. Yeah. Um, you know, those of us who are over here are like, look, it's a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're paying taxes for a reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the time to use it in a socialist fashion. <laughs> just, so we can get back, just so we can get back on our feet. Well, political tug of war, and you're seeing that play out on the national stage on, you know, how well does this, you know free market, you know, really exists in, in this particular uh, scenario, uh, you know, people are, especially over here, uh, a lot of Americans in general have never really traveled yeah. anywhere, yeah. and yeah. they have this belief that, you know, this is the one way to be, you know, uh, um, and that it's got to stay that way forever, even if it kills We were wrestling with a lot of political ideas over yeah. on this side of the pond, so to speak, and, um, you know, you know, if we, if we weren't living in it and we were just studying it in a historical context, it would be very, fa- it would be very much fascinating if we well, were living in it. So, yeah. Now it's playing out like a, a Netflix show for the rest of the world, to be quite honest. Everybody's staying tuned to, to it as it unfolds. So, <laughs> going to put, you know, Saturday Night Live and all the comedy sketches out of business. Right? You, can't, you can't do anything better than what's really happening. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, I'll just give you a heads up. So I've got a little bit. My little boy, uh, Arinze, he's given me a cold, so I may cough a bit. I, I I promise, I ain't I ain't got the Rona. I ain't got the Rona. Should have put that. Should have put it out there. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forgive me if I uh disrupt with with my coughing. Um, right. I guess where I want to start is. From, uh, about the, the Black Blockchain Summit. What is the Blockchain Blockchain Summit? I attended this year. Tell the listeners what that is about. <laughs> well, you know what? That's not, it's not even my brainchild. I wasn't you must be exhausted because I saw you a lot. Yeah, yeah you must be oh, exhausted. I'm 
It's not my brainchild. It, it's when I when I started <clears throat> Black People in Cryptocurrency, the one main thing that we were trying to thwart was MLM schemes targeting. Um, African Americans, and I was aware of MLM schemes on a larger scale in mm -hmm. terms of OneCoin and others oh, yeah. Africans, and kind of get them into these pyramid type schemes. So we kind of launched Black People in Crypto to really talk about education and to be a Reddit like. If anyone's familiar with Reddit, the one valuable system of, of Reddit is that it was a discussion board that didn't allow you to get away with anything. You had yeah. to answer to those no-name people who are like, okay, what about this, 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 ABC, and Roman numeral one, two, three, you know, whatever. You had to answer to that because they weren't going to let anything fly, and they because they're you know mostly anonymous, they could be kind of kind of rude. But the discussion forums, which harkens to the old uh, bulletin board days of the internet, is a system of accountability. It's like you know arguments on the <coughs> in Congress or something like that. Mm. So that as a form of education, just watching two people debate and making a decision, even if you don't chime in in the conversation. Yeah. So yeah. we wanted that type of forum. So we, we, we launched a group. We said no advertising, no pitching, um, unless you're making an announcement. But, you know, none of that salesy stuff. And then even if you make an announcement, if somebody calls you on it in chat, you can't close chat. And also you have to discuss it or just look like a fool because you didn't respond. That was the gist of the group. What transpired, though, was... I ended up discovering even before I launched the group that there were not a number of black people that were in the space that had um, products that were on the blockchain. And one of those people was Sinclair Skinner. Sinclair yeah, Sinclair, Skinner yeah. Had the, had, yeah. Had the Bitmari um, wallet. And, you know, I had seen YouTube videos of him, you know, talking about that and his connections to Zimbabwe and um, what they were trying to do in terms of remittance <clears throat> and providing a way in which uh, primarily black women farmers in Zimbabwe would have access to their money so they can continue business because of what central banking was doing to kind of freeze them out. And yeah, yeah, or sanctions. Money or closing the, bank. the usual, usual shenanigans that affect Africa and the Caribbean more than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Well, not more than anywhere else, but in terms of the black space more than anywhere else. You same stuff happens in Southeast Asia and everything else. But yeah. in any case... Um, I interviewed Sinclair, and um, we, we started one-on-one -on -one interviews in, in Black People and Cryptocurrency, and Sinclair was one of the early people that I interviewed, and he turned back around a, a, a couple of months after I interviewed him and said, look, I'm, I'm producing a conference down at Howard University where I used to teach. Um, yeah. myself, oh, wow. But, okay. Uh, Chris Mabandera, uh, um, who's his business partner, we're producing a conference. Um, <clears throat> I want to try to bring as many, you know, black people down. And I was kind of hesitant. I was like, ah. but, you know, long since not really conference goers. I was like, okay, go to cheerlead and doesn't really materialize anything. Yeah, yeah. And um, so finally at the last minute, he was like, come down. I want you to at least sit on a panel. That's your fourth panel. I didn't even know what panel I was on. So I went down in 2018. And then the quality of the panels, the diversity of, of thought, the, the the topics that were being taught that were from a pan-African perspective because right. you had people there that were from Haiti, from the Dominican mm. Republic, from mm. Kenya, from Ghana, from uh, Botswana. You know, we had all these different people meshing together. People had flown in. And everybody had something that they were trying to remediate um, in their part of the world. And then he was still bringing in some of the mainstream people. So you had Max Kaiser and you had um, some other folk come in and um, speak. And so you had this mesh of, of cultures 
um, talking about the good and bad in the space and proposals of what should be built, what needs to be built. So that was year one in 2018. 2019, which was last September, um, I went down again and I did a keynote specifically about black people and cryptocurrency. But the point of my keynote was to really say that within the year from 2018 to 2019, we're still really not focused on black people as business producers in this space. Yeah. And I did that through game. So I, I used to be a secondary teacher, so high school teacher, um, 9th through 12th grade, so like 14 through, I guess, 18-year-olds, um, 17, 18-year-olds. And and I, um, my master's thesis was using games as a teaching strategy. Sure. And I just know with gameplay and education, it also reduces inhibitions. So we, I found an app that an app that would allow us to do this challenge games that people could just access via web link from their phone, put in a username, and then ha- drop this key and play this game. I said it's a competition. How do we finish this quiz? Let's see how people scored. And the scores were really low. Right. Um, some one person did very well. Well, I wasn't surprised that. But you know, when it was over, you know, I did. I didn't really go into too much about the quizzes. About I started asking more of a Socratic method. So what was different about that quiz? And some people said, well, you said it was going to be about you know cryptocurrency founders and people, but these were some lesser known people. And I said, oh, so they were lesser known. Why do you think they were lesser known? And then finally, a couple of questions in, and somebody says. Were they all black people? I said, yeah, we're sitting here at the blackest conference that there is <laughs> this kind in the United States, and you don't even know your own people mm. who are developing the space. And they were startup, majority startup founders. So that was 2018, and we, in that we dropped the um, uh, BPC, Black on the Blockchain list, at that conference. Yeah. So I had 100 people that we've been scouring, me and a couple other people have been scouring LinkedIn pages, Twitter feeds and stuff, and just trying to figure out what people, without even contacting them, and putting together this master list over 100, because it was a pushback between for, against even publications like Black Enterprise. So it's bad enough that you have publications like, you know, well, Forbes just does a lousy job at general, but Forbes, you have Coindesk, you have um, Cointelegraph, you know, you know, don't even source for a cloak you know, black people in the in the space, much less do a feature on them. But you have all these publications that ignore black technologists and they're software engineers. It's not like, you know, majority of people are just like, oh, I have this idea of making a coin. People, <laughs> that's not most of the people on the list are not making coins. They're making they're doing, you know, solutions with, with yeah. blockchain. Um, the fact that it would be ignored and people swore up and down the list, you can't you couldn't even break a list of ten or twenty five people. So we dropped that list of 100 in September, and then I made the list public. I gave people a month. I made the list public in yeah. October through a, like a basically like an article uh, in a couple other places. I kind of splashed the article elsewhere. And then um, at that time, we started forming and saying the group would concentrate on supporting these uh, startup founders, trying to link them with resources, introductions, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we ended up partnering with um, uh, Mouse Belt University a week before um, the 2019, not about two weeks, two or three weeks before, that, the month before that, August, before the 2019 Black Blockchain Summit Conference. And the reason why we partnered with them is because they're the first um, United States-based 
blockchain business accelerator, but they also had a fully funded and built out educational component in which they were offering education for free. And we felt that students at HBCUs needed to know about this in particular, but, you know, just black students in general needed to know that there were educational resources available and programming that you could do on your own, not costing you anything. And this is the best time to hit it because it's it's still, you know, a, a, a field that's in its, you know, uh, infancy. Um, so we've been pushing that component of it and, you know, doing as much as we can in terms of introductions and in terms of writing an article here and there or a, a, a panel here and there so that people can become familiar with the Black Start founders who are underreported and underfunded in the space. Fantastic. And so 2020, you saw me everywhere. Yep. They, that, that All up in there. Like, All up in there. <laughs> We did the Reimagine 2020, the first Reimagine 2020 conference, which is actually a production of Mouse Belt as well. Um, and we were basically the only black contingent, um, you know, in terms of the organization. Not everyone was black was part of our, part of our group, but um, as an organization trying to diversify the sector, we had um, two panel presentations in the Reimagine 2020, the first one in May. So I think sitting back and looking at that, and, and I think most people don't realize that my, my degrees actually are in journalism and education. I have a bachelor's mm. in uh, print journalism and a master's in education. So BPC, Black People and Girls Grant, kind of stays in that mode of teaching, facilitating media coverage, that sort of thing for our demographic because no one else is basically reaching out um, on a global scale, not just uh, you know in the United States. On a global scale, um, they're not reaching out and, and putting um, even on the continent of Africa, putting Black people on the stage or even funding them. So that's why you saw me everywhere with that. So I'm, I'm linked heavily to that conference that, that I love. I learned to love. I yeah. really resisted in the in the very beginning. I was like, do we really need a conference? So, <laughs> Another conference. Totally, totally <laughs> wrong about that. Yeah. Um, and, and I would have never been able to so many diverse people, a lot of, a lot of Kenyans, a lot of, mm. um, from, um, Alakalani is from Botswana and other mm. people. I wouldn't have met them cause I wouldn't have been in Botswana. I wouldn't have been in Kenya for them to come out and, and really share what was going on in their, their world and what they were working on. Was it, was it a major struggle, uh, bringing it all online? How was, I was that? Not, I was fortunately not the producer. Yeah. I just had to show up. <laughs> it was such a relief when you're not producing cause you know yeah. how, yeah. <laughs> African timing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just woke up. That, yeah. That, that's a natural thing that yeah. happens. In fact, one of the uh, ones that you saw really turned into a fireside chat between mm. um, the, the psychologist and myself, when the, one of the videos that I shared, mm. that was originally supposed to be a panel discussion. Oh, right. Uh, but the other people at the last minute couldn't make it. So oh, it okay. turned into something better because yeah. he and I just talking and we sharing and, and me knowing a little bit about a tiny bit about his background because um, I just gleaned his bio like right before we, you know we were about to start the panel um, it, I think, think it turned out better because it really got us to dig deep into some of the psychological issues that we face uh, kind mm. of on a global scale in terms of black identity and and understanding that, you know, supporting black founders and having a plan to support black founders or this plan to support um, black people in education is not the reverse of white supremacy. I, I think that's hard even for some black people, for whatever reason, to, mm-hmm. to believe that. Um, but, you know, but they don't have a hard time believing, you know, if you, you see a, a all South Korean company, even if they're South Koreans in, in, in the United States, you know, that t- seems normal to them. Mm-hmm. Or if they have a 50% you know, Indian, South Asian company 
that seems normal to them. But they can't seem, you know, black people decide to get together and say, look, we're going to have a black founder and we have majority black employees. Oh, my God, you're reverse racist. Wait, what? <laughs> Maybe I'm just crying employment. Yeah. As we can see, you know, the news that, that broke, you know, two days ago, that's fundamentally becoming more and more important for us to have our own founders so that we don't have a CEO that says, you know, if you don't like my non um comment about your social issues you could just leave my company yeah <laughs> so, so, it's not your father's company come, yeah come, come, come over here work over here i got you no, no problem mm. you can compete against them and then have a real it was an amazing conference i find i think this is the first one i, I really attended uh great speakers you had andreas antonopoulos zay jackson max kaiser sinclair yeah. skinner the winkle one of the winkle for us i don't even know which one it was cameron yeah, cameron. cameron that's the one uh i even find that that satoshi's black now that's something i Satoshi's black came out of the first conference ah uh, was like look we don't know who satoshi exactly <laughs> you're gonna clean him <laughs> well, why not yeah. Satoshi can be black. And then he also recognized that there was a earlier conference, a women's conference, in which they had, uh, before Satoshi's back, hashtag has came out, they had come up with Satoshi's female. Uh -huh. the same premise. Yeah. You don't know who Satoshi is, so why can't it be female? And then all that is to say is that Satoshi could be fill in the blank because the technology that came out of that cypherpunk movement, no matter who they, you know, were in terms of their political beliefs, their, mm -hmm. you know, you know, maybe adoption of some racist type platforms, the technology they end up creating actually resolves a lot of issues for mm -hmm. a lot of different communities mm -hmm. that were feeling the same thing, but for completely, you know, for, for some ideas they probably never would have thought of. You know, they're just was, you know, you know, having control of tax dollars that, you know, went to bail out corporate America and you don't get a vote, you don't get a say, you don't get to say, my, well, I don't want my money doing that, that type of thing. And, and ours is more, well, you know, for, you know, five, more than 500 years now, you have this European hegemony that, you know, basically continues to enslave people, especially in the, in the Caribbean and in, on the African continent, yeah. to bear the financial burden up so that the West can get, you know, send money for free. Um, so it, it, it is, it's, it's true also that within the United States, within, you know, African American, 42 million of us in the United States, we're constantly playing, you know, higher rates on loans if we can even get loans, we pay more for our housing and stuff like that. So we supplement this country also. And it's not just us, it's a pecking order of things. Yeah. If you go down the pecking order, you know, you know, white, uh, waspy males are at the top. And then you slowly take down and everybody else is, is covering the burden, you know, women being paid less, all this kinds of stuff. Yeah. And this type of, you know, hierarchy that needs to, to break wide open and hopefully it breaks wide open with this next civil rights um, movement that's currently. So I want to know more about Deirdre. So obviously you've touched upon your sort of background being in journalism and, and education. How, how did you gravitate into this Bitcoin blockchain space? What is your journey? originally went to school for West Virginia University, let's go Mountaineers, went to uh, West Virginia as a journalism major, writing, I wanted to write, a, be a secular journalist, I wanted to write about features, wasn't interested in crime reporting, so I got my bachelor's degree in journalism and a, a minor in ancient African studies, and you know, if you don't find me representing crypto online, you usually find me talking about Kemet and Kush, the Nile Valley and all that stuff, um, but I went into the secular journalism field when I came back to New York. But because the journalism field paid so little, I picked up a part-time job 
um, with a software development company on Long Island. No, I don't think it exists anymore. It was called Educational Activities in Baltimore, New York. Mom and Pop, and what they did was they produced software for the um, education um, for, for school districts, right? So that should have been a foreshadowing that I would eventually get my master's in teaching, but it wasn't at the time. So part of that supplement was working with software developers who were teaching me as a producer to use CompuServe as a backdoor gateway to the internet so that I could find the free software that exists so they could complete their CD-ROMs yeah. that they were making. And it was totally foreign to me. I mean, they literally had to write down specifically, you will go here, you will go here, this is what telnetting is, this is what this is, this is what Arch, Ar- Archie is. And I didn't, I, did, I barely remember stuff now, but I just remember doing it. And during downtime at that company, which, you know, the, the full-time workers at that company would end up being furloughed because, you know, producing software for a solely an education market and if school districts aren't buying, you know, it has, it's down, in terms of software development, that, that type of audience, they have its downtime. And um, I would spend time exploring, like, you know, going beyond CompuServe and figuring out what, what university students, you could tap into this university and that university and what files were available. I knew a lot of social conversations. So I had discovered the online bulletin board world. And uh, working there for about a year. And then uh, I, I worked at the journals, a place I was working at maybe two or three years. So I ended up... Uh, going full-time back into journalism, working in Brooklyn, but then I was writing, still writing the technical pieces. Now, this time it was about AOL, because nobody could afford, if you weren't a corporation, you couldn't afford CompuServe um, in your household, a license for that, So, but you could afford AOL, and so I told my AOL online, and how you could still use it to get to this thing called the World Wide Web, <laughs> and, you know, what the difference yeah. was, yeah. the for jobs. End up taking a uh, course uh, in Manhattan by an organization called Web Girls. So uh, what you, what year are we talking? What year are we talking? Yeah, so, no, okay. 96, something like that. 95, 96. Yeah. Because I, the, the paper that I worked for was from 95 to 97. So around 95, 96, I started going in Manhattan for this organization called Web Girls. A woman named Aliza Sherman started. Maybe she started. Maybe it was probably 96. Mm-hmm. And she was offering women free classes in this World Wide Web thing. Uh, learn HTML, and all I knew was that HTML was used to code these pages. And at that time, you're talking pictures and tables. There wasn't much to it. it wasn't like database driven too much. Um, but I started networking there, and then eventually, I ended up um, applying for a um, from a classified ad, a, 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 a dot com that was like, look. You know, we need somebody who is a English major or a journalist, and okay. if they know HTML, it's helpful, um, but not necessary. So I honestly believe, almost to this day, I probably was the only person that actually applied to that. <laughs> and, um, because I went in, I was in Manhattan, it was on West Twenty First Street between Fifth and Sixth Avenues, and it, it incidentally would be a couple of months after, a couple about a year after I had worked there, uh, well, not quite a year. Um, P Diddy would have his first restaurant, Justin's, right below us. Oh wow! So we were up, we were Justin's. Above. So it was about CBGBs was there, this club, you know, and all kind of stuff. But anyway, it's a small side street in the Flatiron District of Manhattan, mm-hmm. and I started working for the first one of the precursors to Facebook, uh, a dot com ah. known as the Globe dot. 
AOL and CopyServe were the veterans, but they were really these closed gateways. We talked about that. We talked about that a lot in blockchain, right? Mm, these yeah. closed houses. And then the web versions of them were GeoCities, TheGlobe.com, iVillage, which was more for women, yeah. all of those. And then eventually MySpace kind of slithered in there a little bit. Ah. Um, at the time that MySpace was slithering in, uh, Omar Wasa had the community connect um, site, so Black Planet, Asian Avenue, and I always forget the Latino one. They kind of slithered in, and then last, lo and behold, was Facebook. So the social media movies a little Facebook is the last of the great. Okay. So um, you know, the Globe.com kind of withered in between. Like I think they started it in uh, probably about ninety four, ninety five, when the college campus at Cornell. And then by um, 97, when I joined them, they were actually going back to graduate that August, and I started working with them in April. So they had Manhattan offices in uh, probably about February or March uh, of 97. I came on around April. They went back to graduate at Cornell and came back down to it. And then I was there with, for two and a half years. And then I quit in November of 99. And I was pretty much burnt out. <clears throat> November of 1999, you know, Black Planet was like basically just starting because I remember, you know, talking to Omar about that and, and some other people, the vibes from other places. I just really didn't want to work in technology, but I was sharing right. my experience anyway. And then um, I temped for a while and then I eventually went back and got my master's in education mm-hmm. through a teaching fellowship program, became a high school teacher and realized that in the fire is worse than in the pot. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, but I loved teaching. I loved, like, it wasn't, the issue wasn't the, the children and, or the misbehavior of children. You know, education just it just has a bad culture, mm. I, I just think, for, for, for adults. Adults abusing adults. Mm. It, okay. It, and and it, it, it was not something that I wanted to fight. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's tremendous in, in this country, unfortunately. So I kind of, I taught for five years, and then I kind of slowly transitioned back into where I'm now, which was more like, you know, consulting, you know, web development, that sort of thing. But the Bitcoin thing came about because um, I had heard about Bitcoin in 2015, but dismissed it. I think I ran across it in a YouTube video of some gamers, and I just started with some gaming corn. So I was like, ah, who cares? I, I haven't played games since Atari, so I'm not interested. Then in 2016, um, a VC colleague of mine from the dot-com days, and we had produced events in my dot-com days to kind of bring people of color into the dot-com world as well um, through my Red Ibis brand. And and he came, he contacted me along with, uh, it was a three-way conversation between myself and Bob Ponce, who's an, another quiet admin of black people in cryptocurrency. And he and Bob Ponce used to, used to be president of like the whitest male uh, dot worldwide web uh, consortium organization. He was the second president of that organization. Oh, wow. So we became we became friends because I was like, how did you get that position? He was like, oh, I, I need to be your friend. Yeah. I got it. You know, I yeah. the right place at the right time. Yeah. So, you know, and he's like saying, you know, Bob has been trying to tell me, explain to me about Bitcoin and blockchain. I just don't get it. Mm. Um, you were a journalist. He said, I want to know everything. I want you to break down the history. I want you to put it in plain English as possible. Give me as many analogies as possible because I keep getting hit up 
in the VC world about people talking about this thing, this thing, and I don't know what it is. What year is this so again? Said, what year is this? September, this is 2016. So 2016, okay, 2016. okay. All right, all right. So, yeah. September 2016 and November 2016, I just did plain old research, hmm. wrote them basically a book report, and then my eyes were open. Right. And then I said, oh, at that time, you're talking about coin market cap was saying there was something like 900 cryptos. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where in the world have I been? <laughs> and I'm seeing all these projects, and we're heading into the ICO boom now. We're heading, we're into the okay. people. You know, I got, it does this, and it does that, and I'm using blockchain, and blah, 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 blah. And everyone's racing out to, to get a little <coughs> coin here, a little coin here and there. Yeah. And um, I didn't really didn't do all that racing, but I was more fascinated by the technology. And mm. they were saying that it could solve, and. Um, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of, uh, of, okay, we'll start a business and solve our own problems. Um, so I kind of sat still that from, from early 2017 to like the summer of 2017. And mm. then Bob was like, we've we got to do something because, you know, you see it, you spit connect, they getting out of hand. We know it's BS. Man, they, they can they owe me money. So just to give a little bit of context, so Black People and Cryptocurrency is a Facebook group with about 10,000 members from across the world who basically share information on subjects around investing, mining, debating, sort of blockchain related topics. And it's, it's, a, it's a group that I joined, I think about two years ago, and it's really helped me on sort of my journey on learning blockchain and cryptocurrency and and bitcoin so just as a question this is a question i tend to ask everyone that i speak to in your bitcoin is ground zero 
or the genesis or the birth of what is blockchain technology. And what Bitcoin did was change internet protocol. It changed the internet from being a platform in which everything is shared and copied. So, for instance, you know, if I take a selfie, um, you know, you and I, even if the video is running, and then I send it to you by email or I send it to a hundred of my friends, uh, text messaging, any fashion, you have like 102 copies or 104 copies or whatever of this one picture. But when you using the Bitcoin network and protocol, if you're assigning something to that network of protocol, you now have created a medium of exchange. So now if I were able to, you know, digitize that photo, which, which you can, you know, the whole genre of NFTs is surrounded about that. Yeah. If I send it to you, I no longer have it. It's yours. And it's more than just the picture. It's, you know, anything I put behind that picture, any type of coding I put behind that picture, any type of value I put behind that picture. So it basically changed the internet to allow for medium exchange. And people don't really conceptualize that too. You know, the movie Star Wars, you know, had this fantasy of these droids that were programmed to do a mission. Mm -hmm. Computers programmed Mm -hmm. to do a mission. But they can interact with other droids and they can interact with other humans and actually conduct commerce. The reason why that type of robotics was not realistic it was not realistic is because if one person made R2D2 and one person <laughs> made another droid company, they have conflicting interests, right? Yeah. Who's to validate that one droid gave another droid money? Well, blockchain is that technology because no one owns it. It's a computer network. You could put your computer to it. I could put my computer to it. You know, whole, all of IBM could put all of its computers to it. All of China could put all of its computers to it. You know, little boy in Kenya could put his tr- computer to it. So when you have all these different narratives of computers um, operating this system, not one can control the whole system or stop the whole system. So now you've got this these computers running these scripts and these protocols. So now you, the two droids can come face-to-face and one droid can say, well, I'm going to send you money through this blockchain system. And everybody can see it. Did you get the money? They <laughs> said, okay, you got the money? Okay, I got the money. And, and a real world thing is, um, Domino Chrysler last summer mm. ran a test drive of self-electric trucks. Yep. And those trucks self-fueled at electric charging stations in Germany. But Daimler didn't own the electrical charging stations. Some other company did. Mm -hmm. And those two machines transacted with each other. So Daimler sent money by way of a non-human driving truck to the owners of the charging station, and the trucks went on its way. That's Star Wars in action. And it's the blockchain that makes that commerce possible because it's just a a, a network-running a series of programs by computers that anyone can own. And then it's just, it's, you know, too expensive, put it this way, at least Bitcoin is, too expensive for one entity to sabotage it. And even if one entity did sabotage it, as soon as it's sabotaged, you just devalued the network. It all, and now it became worthless because now it just became a regular old company. <laughs> we have companies that do that all the time that kind of reverse things and uh, freeze accounts and, and that's not the, the point of it it's just supposed to 
work, whether it's working for someone who's doing something bad or working for someone who's doing what's good, it's supposed to work as, as it's designed to work. So, you know, it's, you know, in many ways, it's kind of abstract, but if you think about it in terms of you can create voting systems on top mm-hmm. of this, mm-hmm. now you don't have to worry about, well, is the person collecting my ballot or who built the electric machines, a contra- company that had the polling machines, whether conservatives or liberals or, you know, something in between, um, you know, uh, did they, they write something in the code that it, every fifth vote for this candidate goes to the other candidate? Well, well what's on blockchain, you know, someone's computer in, you know, Mexico doesn't care what's happening in election in Sweden. Just, it just does what it's supposed to do. It just it recognizes one address and sending this to one address, and I need to make sure that it, it gets there. You know, so if people could kind of understand how this is, this huge network of computers mm. that are working just to run a script, just to execute what was, you know, what is being sent, then they have a little bit of a grasp of how it changed internet protocol that people can exchange versus copy and paste. So now I can send you a whole of a part or part of a piece of data, and that's why it executed first as money because that's what they were trying to replicate. Yeah, you know, cool. you have full full paper money, and then you have you know uh, you know change of that that type of uh, paper fiat. Um, and how do you so add and subtract? You know these values that are going across, but it works for voting. It works for an exchange of property. If you want to assign a property to it, in terms of tokenization, it's just now you can even artwork. You can take yeah, yeah. this type of stuff, and you can say this person. It was once with this one owner. Now it's this was one owner, or it can be shared among owners. It's like these multiple people have it assigned to this account that are shared owners of this type of data. So it's no longer uh, uh, strictly, the internet is no longer strictly a copy and paste share environment. I, I read a book called engines that move market so it's, it's quite a good book and it's basically it talks about sort of uh pivotal and scalable inventions that had major impacts on sort of civilization and governance structures in society and it kind of talks about electricity the steam engines railways the internet do you feel blockchain is potentially in that list of innovations well, I, saw, I saw the the the, the web moon of the internet. The, the internet had pre-existed since the, the 60s, since before I was born. So the dot com, dot com boom. Yeah, yeah. The change of the dot com, the, the web boom, and I think this one is equally as large, but it's it's also taking a battle and a fight. Right. There are so many people invested in the status quo, yeah. remaining the status quo. And our contention, you know, especially as Black people, is the status quo has victimized us mm-hmm. as a part of its status quo so we're battling against we're battling for a change so that we have uh, a more uh, equitable system um you know you know i think people globally have normalized um the abuse of black bodies everywhere and a lot of that abuse is oh you know why can't you people you know, get it together in the Caribbean and this. Well, you know, you charge me twenty percent revenge fees. Maybe that's what you're <laughs> saying. Well, you're complaining against point zero three percent. I'm hit 
Uh, that's not the, yeah. If the system is working at all. Crazy. So, you know, what we're fighting for in terms of black people in cryptocurrency is more of what the cypherpunks had in, in line of this ability to have this free commerce because we're already enslaved. Hmm. I mean, it's straight up slavery. It's like straight up abuse is straight up slavery. Hmm. Anytime that you have, you know, in a region such as the Caribbean and also in African nations, that you have to go through a bank in the United States, Canada, or Europe for your 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 exchange of money to be validated, that's straight up slavery. That's yeah. straight up colonial. Agreed. There's no there's no sugarcoating that. So the technology can be done. The technology is already there that it can be done. Now, will we be have enough black people to fight and ensure that the legislators don't come in and deem what is technically possible illegal <clears throat> is the problem. That's the that's the biggest problem that we're we're fighting against. They will demonize it. They're doing the same demonizing tactics actually they did during the, the dot com day. When the web, the early web came out, porn and gangsters, porn. wasn't and it? Yeah. NBC, don't mm. go on the internet. There's nothing mm. but pedophiles and drug yeah. dealers. <laughs> it's, it's the exact same vocabulary. Yeah, and I, 100%. When people talk, use that vocabulary to talk about blockchain or they talk about um, Bitcoin. I say, well, you know what? I'm sure you're probably frequent a park, but you know, there are rapes and stuff that happen in a parlor. Why are you going to run in a park? There's rapes and muggers there. <laughs> and then people are like, oh, but you know, I follow safety precautions and this, this, this. this. Oh, so you're making an excuse. Yeah. You know, daggone well crime happens in the park, or crime happens in the city, or crime happens in the suburb. So so don't label an entire thing. Oh, you know, just like that dark web. You know, they use it for the dark web. Well, shoot, you, I bet you there's a drug dealer selling meth a couple of houses away using cash. <laughs> so don't, don't, oh. don't, 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 you know, if you're not right. criminal behavior, you, you know, everything that exists in the blockchain space already exists in the regular web space and already 100 percent 100 so you know if you're gonna fight crime then fight crime and fight crime fairly i mean there was major crime last year the largest drug bust in the port uh bust uh by federal agents in the united states is a as a jp Morgan. June yeah. of 2019, the news coverage didn't break till 4th of July weekend because, you know, no one's watching the news during the holiday here. <laughs> so the news didn't break till later, but it was 20 tons of cocaine found on this ship. You know you don't start a drug run with 20 tons of cocaine. You don't say, wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm going to start 20 tons of cocaine on this ship. You've been running for a while. To get to that, <laughs> that is a route. You've been running for a while. Ain't nobody go to jail yet. No and one. JP Morgan is like, well, we didn't know it was on our ship, you know, because that really is owned by another company that we own that company. And, and all of a sudden, nobody knows it. Shells. <laughs> but if you was a local street corner person, that is it. somebody in your family was dealing a, a dime bag, <laughs> you know, the whole household, the poor 100%. Whole household going to jail. And the mother's, you know, saying, well, you know, she's a failure and this, that. And people, so justice needs to be, you know, there needs to be some parity to some of the crimes that are committed and for too too often you know if you are a certain wealth or certain income bracket you can be absolved of all sorts of crimes uh -huh. all, all sorts of things so people are looking at that not just black people white people and you know all kinds of people are looking at that and saying this is the system is messed up uh but you know we we look at it in terms of black people as, as a way to remediate 
some of the financial crimes that have been committed against us and continue to be committed against us. There's still a disparity, uh, disparity in funding. Uh, you know, you know, black startup founders. You know, people will still run to, you know, a subpar white male and <clears throat> fund him with a lukewarm idea, and then they will turn around and make the excuse, "Well, nine out of ten startups generally fail." Well, you know, ten, nearly nine out of ten startups that you're funding, if not more than that, are are are, are white males. Maybe if you diversified it with, you know, women and Latinos <laughs> yeah. and you know, Native Americans and, and and black people who are actually qualified to 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 help different types of companies in their air in in their sectors or just in for the mainstream, maybe we wouldn't have such a high failure rate. But their failures are excused and their abuses are brushed under the rug in terms of doing business as as, as a necessity to do business. Well it's their company and they get to do you know, their 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 role is to make money and you know, they can be as racist as hell. Mm. Mm. 100%. <laughs> so we're fighting all of that at the same time. So just when you started the group, obviously it was to support and educate uh, obviously black people coming into the space around sort of multi-level marketing schemes, one coin. Uh, are you are you seeing a change in, or is there been a change in terms of what the group's doing? Uh, is it more focused around helping businesses gain funding? What, what is, what's the group's major focus now, I guess? It's a I question. think there's more going on behind the scenes that right. we're trying to galvanize that people are not seeing in the group for the day-to-day. Okay. When we first started the group, you know, I was posting something like, you know, you know, four or five times a day, every single day. I mean, it wasn't a lot of conversation going on, sure. tutorials and this, that, and, and in between that, doing like one-on-one live streams with different startup founders. Now, less of that a bit because I'm trying to work on more educational pro- programs and kind of pull out my master's degree and then work on actual, um, you know, short classes that people can take at boot camp experiences. We're talking behind the scenes to a lot of different organizations that um, are other black organizations that some of most of Pan-African, not most, but some of Pan-African to kind of get them on board with the fundamentals of what's going on. There's a lot of introductions being happening behind the scenes of the uh, early startup founders that we, um, you know, fr- originally interviewed in terms of one-on-one, I talked to them, a, a lot of those founders DM back and forth. Um, do you know anyone who can do this? Do you know this or whatever? Or what do you have to think of this idea? So there's a lot of, a lot of the silence on my part within the group has to do with the conversations that are happening behind the scenes to kind of work on the introduction, especially since the pandemic hit, of people talking to each other um, and a lot of, you know, Zoom calls and, and that sort yeah. of thing so that when we come on the other side of this pandemic, that people are in a better place than they were before. So the group itself now, you know, it's really a lot of, you know, some of the members that have always been there for a long time sharing yeah. their, you know, what they're things are I'd love to see people more I think one of my biggest pet peeves in the group is that people don't post about um the black founders and what they're doing you okay. know, we created that list for that purpose we created the uh, BPC black on a blockchain list so you can run through it yourself and do a google search and see who this person is and find out if they've done a new video or whatever and I still find that for the most part if it's not myself and maybe Jamari Peterson and Eduardo or something like that. People are not posting about other. It's a black group. Why wouldn't you post? Why wouldn't you be have? Don't you have a favorite of someone to post? Um, and even if they do post something, it's like very, um, I want to say marketing ish. But it's one of those things that okay, you post it, and if somebody has something 
contrary to say it, don't be like, oh, well, it's crabs in the barrel. I, no, it was a valid question. I have a question to ask about this particular aspect of what they're doing. Because you find that some the, the, the real um, startup founders that are used to um, software development culture don't have a problem defending their projects like a thesis. Um, so, you know, if you bring something up, you know, they'll, they'll respond, well, we're not going in that direction because this, that, and the third or whatever. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm like a little disappointed that people don't talk up um, projects like why, you know, Africa has its first blockchain, own blockchain, um, it's decentralized, um, spearheaded by uh, Kenyan engineers, but not exclusive to Kenyan engineers. In fact, if you ever go to the, to the Telegram for why, you find Russians and Chinese, and more and more I'm seeing people like named like, like O'Connor and stuff popping in. So it's a decentralized blockchain, and the, the goal of it is to, you know, have this blockchain that eventually a company can sit on top that decentralizes solar energy and gives um, those who are living in the solar zone, so not just Africans, but those living but anywhere in the equator, uh, a, a, a greater chance to earn more revenue than people who are like me, not necessarily near the equator, mm. <laughs> but in the equator. So yeah. it's actually a, a kind of a stacked deck that actually benefits, you know, tropical regions of the world in yeah. a decentralized blockchain, but it's a decentralized blockchain that, you know, if you wanted to build something on it, you could build something on it. And I think more of that needs to be talked about how, you know, people who are from these regions are best served to build out products for, you know, for the for African problems. Yeah. Someone to come in. Yeah. yeah wait, we're just waiting for someone to come in yeah. and, and, and basically recolonize you because Honestly, I don't really see how, you know, after 500 years, um, you know, people aligning themselves only with mainstream partners and, and cheerleading those partners as they come in, I, that's not progress. That's just the same old, same old. They don't understand. Um, they barely, a lot of these people, even if the ones that are, are, are American, they don't even respect African Americans. So they're not going to respect you coming into Africa proper. Mm. Um, to offer a solution. It's a hegemony. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very vocal about, um, you know, our, our platform is, our group is on Facebook, but, you know, I really do not like Libra at all. I mean, yeah. you know, people are cheerleading that and screaming and stuff. <clears throat> As a first of all, it's not even a true cryptocurrency. <laughs> it's just trying to be a stable It's point. not a stable one, yeah. But the other thing is, they talked about all their partners. Not one of them was an African partner, but you know they was talking. The, the They're gonna go hard in Africa. Had an African woman on it. Had an African had a female yeah. on it. Got with the with the us. Yep. Got a black woman that they didn't pay to play. <laughs> <laughs> Stole that image. Right, the, the, yeah. There's a new there's a new scramble for Africa, and the scramble yeah. of Africa Digital. is to overturn the telcos. That a start had already established, you know, like Impesa mm. and others have established yep. this kind of e-commerce using phone. Overturn them in favor of the great Western brand that you're gonna love. So you just and we're gonna come in and offer everything for free. So now everybody's gonna run to you for look how great Mark Zuckerberg is. Look how great Jack Dorsey mm. is. Look, look how they love us so. And then when they kill all your businesses, they're gonna say, "Oh, now your fees are just like they were before. Twenty percent remittance." Like <laughs> we know this is the place this is what's been happening for this is what's yeah. been happening for five hundred years. And they will have people who look like us, who are us, to be the enablers in that in that effort. 
How important is it for black ideas to be funded by black money? It's extremely important. The uh, Black Punk Chain Summit um, fireside chat that I had um, with the psychologist, uh, Dr. Kevin Washington, we talked about there being a psychological problem even among black people of wealth who find more validation in running with their their money, their celebrity money, their whatever money, as long as a white person is leading the project and that being problematic. And there's no other, no bigger uh, uh, um, case as to why that is a mistake than Coinbase right now. Okay, explain to me this. Explain this to me. Break it down. Yeah, they always have to, yeah, yeah. It don't change my life. Oh, really? And, wow. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Just, interesting. Chase white skirts. 
and they put these gatekeeping white people between black software engineers. Mm. <laughs> mm. So, or black startup founders. So a lot of black startup founders are software engineers. They have multiple degrees. They're not faking the funk. They're not marketing people. I mean, some people, some of us are, you know, like me coming to, like from the side view, but a lot of them are not, they're, you know, code crunching just like anybody else. Mm. And they can't get past the gate, the white gatekeepers of managers and VC funds and whatever other white people that a whole bunch of celebrities put, because we can't talk to them directly. And then we see the same black celebrities funding our oppression. So you're dumping, somebody white told you that Coinbase was a great investment. Now you didn't think to look, well, who's behind it? Oh, Adam Draper. What do we need to know about Adam Draper? His father's Tim Draper. Who is he aligned with? Oh, Peter Thiel, that racist? I'm going to call him racist because that's what he is. So if you don't dig that deep and see that all these people are aligned, and it's okay that, you know, you know his, his, his main boy is a, a Trump supporter. It's okay. If you don't see that, then you can't see, you, didn't for, you can't foresee why, what, the internal struggles of what's going on at Coinbase right now and that mm. being a racist paradigm. Mm. Now, we, all, we could see it even before this news dropped, even before the leak started happening and the talk about them walking out and him not making a statement. We know because we know start, white startup founders. We know that when they start big to go small, even the one, the company that I worked at was in the middle of New York City. And I was there, I think there was the 12th hire there, maybe their second New York City hire, because I think their director of marketing um, was a little bit older than me. And I think I was like second or third oldest. Um, she, she was based in New York. But, you know, I was basically about the 12th hire, uh, second maybe of New York City. And stayed with them until they were about 250 employees and were in different countries. But you're in the middle of New York City, but your company doesn't look like New York City. Mm. Mm. It's, it, it gets, it not only does it get whiter as you expand, it gets less New York white. And New York has a specificity. You know, everybody's country, you know, everybody's city has, a, especially in America, has a specificity. So if you're talking about stories like Boston, Mm. New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, those northeastern cities. You're talking Italian, mm. Irish, mm. Jewish. Mm. You're talking Eastern European. Yeah. You know, you would watch the company grow, and the people that they were putting in the managing positions were the, the least ethnics. You know, so there's a pecking order even in New York City companies, and that, that was a very small company. I mean, they did have some Jewish people in decision roles because one of our founders was, was Jewish. So, but you have, in, in other companies, you can, you can, if you're well-versed in New York and you can go in companies and you can see who the CEO is, you can find out, okay, and if I walk in this company, it could be all white. I can tell you where all the Italians are, secretaries. I can tell you, or if there any Irish, I can tell you where they are because racism is that insidious. Mm. So white people don't see it that way. They see it as, oh, you know, I'm struggling hard, and I know my own ethnic lens. So they're not thinking about black people. They're not thinking about Hispanic because they're dealing with their own BS that they have yeah. to deal with. Sure. The perception by my name ends in a vowel, and mm. my too dark, or my whatever. So they got that, but they're still ahead of us. Mm. So when you have this paradigm of this black wealth and black money that's not even, do you know how easy it is to find me? If I use my name, except for on Twitter, 
and that's because I was I was on Twitter for so long that was a, it was cool when you started Twitter to have a, like a business name, and I just never switched over. But you can't, and you know how how easy it is to find me and shoot me and ask me how easy it was to you walk. Okay, it wasn't that easy because we had a couple cancellations. <laughs> it's very easy to get me on an email or a text message yep. to shoot me a question or whatever. And we've been building this for a while, and we're not even the only black people in the space that's building this stuff. Ain't nobody getting contacted. So that's a psychological problem, because I can tell you right now, when we were when we were hunting and, and, and sending stuff to different VCs, and we were trying to send stuff to VCs that we thought um, had some type of diversity in their portfolio, yeah. and or uh, you know the black VCs that really don't have any money anyway, you know, ten million dollars is really nothing, and, and they're getting their money from white people, so that they might as well be white VCs. So don't really need squat. So I would see something, and I would say, okay. Let me contact this VC. But I got to go through this gatekeeper. So I'm not getting directly at Will Smith. Mm. And so I'm getting the gatekeeper to tell me, well, we don't, you know, we already have blockchain companies. And then I look at this crap that they have and I said, well, that's a shell company. <laughs> ain't no way that these two founders started that blockchain company when technologically they was in college last year working on fries. And I, what I mean by fries is, the product that they had before this company is a huge gap for mm. a 20-something-year-old to be leading that. Mm. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of black money that's going into white ventures. Mm. And why are they going into these white ventures with these, you know, people who, oh, you know, their peers said voted for Trump. If they don't say they vote for Trump. So you're dealing with giving your money to a bunch of racists while you're screaming Black Lives Matter on the social front. But you're not screaming <laughs> Black Lives Matter on the business blockchain front. Uh... You're not talking to us. You're not talking to none of us. And, you know, some of the people in my network, they even have, some of them, well, one <clears> of them actually has sold a company before, a startup company, that he had a white boy front. Ah, uh, interesting. So now he's on, out on his own, and he said, wow, I'm literally the same person they thought I was second in the other company that I sold. And now I can't get a meeting. So that whole movie, The Banker, yeah, the ba playing out right now. Yeah, I see that. I haven't seen that yet. I need to watch that. But I, yeah, I yeah. I didn't but... even want to see it because we're already living Yeah, no, no, no. I hear that. You have, you have, incidents, you also yeah. have incidents because we're so low on the pecking, hole, or the pecking order. That you that that even the white world knows they can convince a black celebrity to look at us, look at them, and not look at us. You have incidents of of straight out theft. Mm -hmm. So you know you have a number of people that you know to get a little chump change here, ten thousand here, thirty five thousand here, whatever. They'll do these pitch deck things, and then they'll meet other people. So they'll like win or win something or be among the winners. And then they'll meet these mainstream high-end VCs who basically will fleece them of their project by asking them, can you send me your MVP? Can you send me your demo? Uh... Can you and then they'll go dark. And next mm. thing you know, guess what Disney's coming out with? But that was our stuff. So we're dealing with all the same racist stuff that has existed since Elijah McCoy or before. We're like, we're the real McCoy of a lot of stuff. And it happened during the dot-com era as well. Then, mm. you know, even today I had a conversation with, with a younger person in this sector 
And I, I think I was mentioning Omar Wasa to him, and he had never heard of Omar Wasa. I was like, you haven't heard of the founder of Black Planet? Hmm. And I realized that I'm like, you know, 25 years older than this one. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that people don't know the early pi- black pioneers of the dot-com, you know, even this medium that we're on now, people are like, oh, I know a Zoom, I know a Zoom, I know a Zoom. But you don't know Henry Lewis, I'm sorry, John Henry Thompson was the chief scientist for Macromedia. And he created a programming language called Lingo that makes computerized video possible. Wow. So we're not, we're, we're on Zoom because of a black man's programming language. Even if they no longer use Lingo anymore, his was the first that made it absolutely possible. And we use .com names instead of IP addresses because of Emmett McHenry decided, you know, we could just make an assignment of these numbers through a registration system and tie the numbers to um, a name because people have been ready to read the name. So he, you know, the, the first domain registrar was also founded by a black person. And before there was Facebook, there was Black Planet, even though, like I said, the globe.com that I worked for was before them. But Lamar, uh, Omar Walsall had actually had New York Online which was like a bulletin board system even before the globe.com. So even though he didn't have a, a web social media, he was well versed with, you know, the community sense of, you know, um, people from certain cultures, you know, talking to each other and that sort of thing and that type of dynamic even before some of the web-based social media platforms. So if you're not familiar that there were a slew of, uh, even the, the search engine, um, uh, Archie was the first internet pre-web internet search engine that I was using back in the day when I was using CompuServe as a backdoor to find software. Um, so it wasn't web-based, but you could use these things to search you know, university databases. And that's how I found myself. That was created by Alan M. Taj, who's also black and living in, in uh, I, think he's, I don't know if he's still in Canada. He's, he's part Canadian, part, part, part Bar- Barbados, so mm. where he's living now. But if you're not familiar with how many black people who are not, who other white people went to to learn what they did to start their brands because these black people weren't funded then you don't understand what's happening now it's the same thing the only difference now is that actually more women players uh black women players than i you know there were a few also in the dot-com era as well mm-hmm. but in terms of, of, of developers and coders and stuff like that they're more uh, there's a gap between the women of the hidden uh, hidden uh, figures generation and the dot com boom. There were fewer. Some there were some on the on the, the kind of the telco area, but not necessarily in the web. And but now we're in the blockchain, and there are a number of black women that are actually coders and developers that have their own ideas of on what they want to do or whatever. So not as many as there should be, but you know, you still have a, a, a more of an egalitarian system even within black culture, but everyone's face, kind of facing the same thing. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like, um, there's no real money for us. There's all these... Now, I'm, I'm a bit older, and I, I think I'm, I'm here at the perfect time that I should be here because I was like them at the boon of the dot-com era. I bought a lot of lots. The lie that, you know, well, you don't have enough experience, uh, first, you need to get people to work for you for free. Uh, 
you need to get the MVP, you need to get to this step. It's a bunch of lies. And I'll tell you why I know it's a lie. <laughs> because I was the 12th hire at theglobe.com for two kids that hadn't graduated from Cornell yet, yet they were offering to double, I was tripling my salary. No, I was doubling my salary when they first hired me. And they offered me full dental and benefits, and they had $6 million, and they'd never led a company in their life. That's how I know it's a lie. So don't tell me. You tell me what you want to build. Yeah. And let's get this show on the road, and let's do it. Because right now, black people are globally. And I, when I mean black people globally, I'm talking, you know, African, Caribbean. I'm talking freaking the Pacific, Vanuatu. Papua New Guinea, we're all in the same daggone boat. There's genocide right now going on in Papua New Guinea. And that's yeah, that is. Yeah, and being 100%. That is real. So, if you have this global oppression going on, we don't have one Samsung, we don't have one Google, we don't have one Microsoft, we ain't got nothing on a global scale in this technological space, and we have to. Because our sheer numbers put us at least at 2 billion people. So basically, you know, uh, I don't even want to know what the global population is, but at least 2 billion because 1.7, I know that 1.7 billion is African in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Africa's 1.2 billion, we're another 0.5, and I'm going to throw them up there because they don't even get counted with us. <laughs> they get treated like this yeah. because they look just like us and they know it. Yeah. And they know it. You don't want to be, you want to live in Australia, you got a choice to to Magic Puff, and they, they were like, you know, Malcolm, you know, maybe time again, we're going to put you in Australia. Would you choose to be Aborigine? Hell no, you wouldn't. Not because you don't respect the culture, you can't identify, because you know that it's in the bottom of the slave pole like yeah. Honestly, we hmm. have to galvanize ourselves to create our own brands for the world. Yeah. Fully understood. It's psychologically. You have people, and which is why I stay focused on, you know, Kemet and Nile Valley and how black it was. You know, people are still confused about that. Mm -hmm. I'm highly confused about that. Just this drug of white supremacy, it starts with de-Africanizing Africa. Mm -hmm. And if you take this, all the ingenuity and created these fictional Negro people that never done nothing, Thank God for white people for saving us, for teaching us anything. Mm. If you reduce black people to this fictional group, then you can rationalize why they're not qualified to run a modern company. They're just so disadvantaged. No yeah. matter where you are, it doesn't matter that you, you know, your family may have come directly from Africa and went to all, you went to all British schools. You're still less qualified yeah. because you don't have the history of it from your nationality. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the history of it because of the of the slavery they imposed on us. And one of the things that always fascinated me is that if you took me from nothing, then why was there such a need for me not to speak my language, to change my name, and make me forget my history? Then you took me from something that yeah. I needed to be wiped from. You took me as a child. Because most of the people they put on the slave ships were, were young people. Mm. Mm. And then you forced them, you beat them and separated them into submission to, so that you could apply a term Negro of a fantasy people. <laughs> and then you mad at us for reclaiming it. What role do HBCUs play in this space in, in terms of being e incubators for, for these ideas? 
Um, just before you start, can you just explain to, to people who may be listening what a HBCU is? Because there will be yeah. people who don't know what one is. Well, you know, when, when um, in this country, and because of rape, especially in the United States, every everyone had like a different type of take on it. So it's different in, in Cuba versus uh, Brazil versus the United States, this, this white supremacy. But under the British who were some among the worst, uh, they decided that if you were one-sixteenth of black ancestry, you were still considered not white. So that meant, you know, you had, you know, a slew, probably genetically more white than black, but they considered you basically slave. So, you know, you had, you know, this this culture in which, you know, white men could rape and not be considered a crime against black women and had all these kids, but you do still have this take in which they kind of sort of did want to provide a little something for their half black, half white, or bring them in the household because the white wife wouldn't want that, but <laughs> there was something else, and I'm, I'm a my, my grandmother lived, my father's side, my grandmother lived, and she was light like me. She lived uh, until she was 100. Oh, wow. And her, her father was the half-white child of a slaveholder named McCord in Georgia. Hmm. And he was literate. And when she was coming around at age 15 and 16, and she was brought to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Uh, She was asked when she was 16, did she want to get married or did she want to go to college? Now, one of them was an HBCU, historically black colleges and universities. These schools were set up initially for the mixed-race children of slave owners, for them to learn a trade. Wow, okay. Learn how to farm better. Um. And then eventually they grew to for schools for just you know you know if you were unmixed black or whatever it became the quote unquote you know black schools. A lot of the schools were named after white people. Um, a lot of them named for the people who put the money into it. The, the slaveholders named after uh, people who were uh, white who were against slavery. Right, abolitionists. Um, and essentially, you know, over the years they have grown, they actually, there are a hundred and, I think about a hundred and one or a hundred and two accredited historically black colleges. Oh, wow. In Didn't know there's that many. Depending on what you want to study, some are like, you know, like Meharry is, is, is medical focused. Um, some are more liberal arts, some are more, um, you know, some are all male, like Morehouse College and Spelman is all. Uh, female, some are, are linked to religion, uh, Catholic, back like Xavier, um, some are, there's actually a Presbyterian one, so they all have their own nuances, but what okay. they have in common is the vast majority of the student body, in most instances, in most of the universities, um, are still African, Amer- not just African American, but now black people from everywhere, Caribbean sure. to Africa, and those, the, the HBCUs, actually every year produce about 20% of the um, black graduates in the space, even though they only represent about 3% of the actual uh, institutions of higher learning. 
So, you know, institutional higher learning in general in terms of college university is somewhere over 4,000. So you have 101, 102 school accredited schools that are producing 20% of the graduates. Wow. Versus the 4,000. And I went to a predominantly white institution for both my master's and undergraduate. So they're, they're very much a, um, you know, finan- foundational need. Um, they too suffer from... Um, lack of well if you don't have viable businesses within your community you don't have a lot of people donating to the schools yeah. to maintain them so yeah. they rely a lot on um you know government funding and 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 also alumni support um and so in terms of blockchain um it, it's it's so new and i would say that the hbcus are somewhat on par as many mainstream american universities hmm which is not really ready to pay attention to what's going on. They're too busy distracted by a hope that by other aspects of the economy to look so forward as to thinking we need to make sure that people are, you know, studying the programming languages that are going to be needed for those who have the fields in, in blockchain. So I wouldn't say that they're out of scope or out of touch. I would say that Outreach has been extended at right. least from uh, my organization to at least the ones in, in, in some of the ones in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have a relationship with um, a professor at Howard University who's, you know, has, you know, even long before we stepped into the play, Howard is the home base of Black Blockchain Summit. So they're made more aware, aware of what's going on than some of the other schools um, and there's a, a professor there Todd Shirt, who's actually brought in uh, independent of our, 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 our group but has brought in um, black founders um, to discuss <laughs> what's happening and you know how is it changing and what's the programming careers and you know in the startup space and then secondarily you have schools like Morgan State who um, are among you know several schools not just black schools that have accepted checks from um, Ripple, which, oh, yeah. you know, okay. Ripple is more of like a, a, you know, traditional conservative banking company that's in the blockchain space. Yeah. So, you know, you have a, at least if something is better than nothing type thing. Yeah. You know, at least they have money and they have the resources, but do they have the breadth of what's going on? And does that really facilitate, you know, um, the students is is a matter of debate, but they ha- definitely have a program going on there. Um, and then, not the only one, I mean, fund, uh, Ripple wrote checks for nearly everybody at <coughs> MIT and all that stuff like that. Uh, but the only difference is with an MIT, a Berkeley, a Stanford, who, who are just leaving everybody. It don't matter if you're HBCU or you're, you know, any other predominantly white institution, um, is that they have multiple funding sources. So they can take a a check from Ripple and run a program with Ripple, but then they can also have their students do independent projects or projects funded from Microsoft and projects funded mm-hmm. from you mm-hmm. know independent alumni who 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 had the jobs at these initial computer startup companies that can fund you know just open source education in general. And I think as a whole, um, what needs to be done at HBCUs is the the the, the Impetus needs to come from the students themselves to be able to 
um, have access on their own. And it's, it's often very hard. You know, I've, it's not lost to me. I haven't forgot what it's like to be a student and to try to manage your own personal finances, um, <clears throat> especially in an economic time like this. You manage your own personal finances, um, manage your academic studies, and maybe manage a part-time job. And now I'm saying you need to start a blockchain club. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those things that it's easier for the student to say, well, maybe I'll just do Panasonic's work-study phone because if I do an extra club, they're paying for it or they're coming in with money. So mm-hmm. the bottom line is organizations like mine, uh, Black People in Cryptocurrency, not only do we need to come in with free education in the in the span, and that's the reason why we, we partner with Mousebelt um, because they have already funded and built out some of the education and actually have access to um, um, some of their um, startup founders um you know, speakers are coming to teach um, virtually, uh, but we need to come to the table with you know a full rich program that actually has a creates a work study program for the students because that's what they're getting from the big brands. You know, if Microsoft comes to the table, Ripple comes to the table, if Panasonic comes to the table, they come with a little stipend for the kids, and you can't blame them. They still got to pay for livelihood at even during a pandemic at these mm. universities they still got to pay you know a certain amount of you know depending each individual university is different in the united states or how they handle it some schools have reduced things and some schools have not but you know now they don't have their little restaurant job anymore you know because the restaurant is not open and they, and they cut the staff yeah so they don't Terrible. have the money to pay so you know we got to come to the table and treat things like it's a different world we're living in yeah you know Get rid of this notion that kids should, you know, sweat equity and internship and stuff. We're like, look, we're paying paying you to learn, just like any nation would do. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, if I, if, if Asian NATO or the way India came back, um, well, parts of India have come back in the technical space. They came in and they invested in the education of the people and had these, you know, in, in corporations that paid for people to learn and work at the same time. We have to treat this the same way. So. In terms of HBCUs, you know they're they're as they're no more tentative than any other mainstream um, college or university, with with great reason to be. But they also are not, you know, rushing to the next big thing because you know they're like, okay, we'll bring money to the table like Microsoft and Ripple did. Before we close out, I'd like to sort of get your view of the outlook moving forward. So Deirdre, what's your outlook for the next, say, five to 20 years? Like, do you see Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain as an opportunity for the global black community to fight poverty, build wealth, implement solid governance structures uh, and build brands? What is your view of the future? It can, but we can't do it without money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hit up every celebrity, every wealthy person, they'll come to the table. Let's talk about how we're going to fund it. Because this is not, this is not a bootstrap culture. You know, we're sitting back and we're watching companies that had, you know, two hundred fifty-seven million dollars. I mean, about two hundred fifty was from their ICO that they didn't have to pay back, logically mm. enough. And then they still had an additional seven or ten million for like one project, which yeah. to date, I think that thing has been running since. 2015, 2014, they ain't launched nothing yet. <laughs> threatened, Chinese people threatened to fork the whole daggone program because they didn't like the compensation when it was laid out. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have, you know, 
the, the, the white Western world has come to the table through their alumni and through their wealth circles and thrown in hundreds of millions of dollars. Hmm. We can't, we have, we have to compete at that level. We have to, if you don't have the funding, then nothing, nothing's going to happen. We just have pipe dreams. That's it. Um, the other thing is there's stuff that we can u- uniquely um, solve and be masters of. You know, I'm sitting back and I'm seeing, um, and it takes all fronts. It takes a, a, a political um, contingents of knowledgeable people on blockchain to fight, the, you know, the, the legislations that's going to treat Africa and the Caribbean differently than it's going to treat Canada and the UK and the United States. We've got to fight against that. We have that parity in, 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 in the laws of who can, who can compete and who can do what. Because right now, to this day, you know, people sitting back, you know, talking about, oh, I can, you know, Cash App and I can Venmo and I can... Uh, PayPal and I can strap, but if you can't use that in Africa and the Caribbean because of the, the hegemony. But we know technically it is possible to transfer money um, using blockchain inexpensively. You mm. know, you always have to use Bitcoin, Litecoin, yeah. Ethereum, whatever, Dash, whatever you want to use. <clears throat> so people can conduct reliable business. If we can have reliable business between the continent in the Western world or Caribbean and the rest of the world, then you can have, you can have scientific companies that are black that are saying, Hey, you know, Sudan, you got the acacia trees and the gum Arabica, whatever. We're going to change the name though. We can call it Arab gum. That's our damn African tree. We're going to change that tree is because there's so many medicinal purposes. You know, Europe and, and, and the United States medical community is running to rip them trees and use it for everything from, from lubricants to whatever. What's the name of the tree? What's the name of it? Uh, what do they call it? They call it, it's called the acacia tree. It's acacia, uh, 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 cassia. The gum, the gum, uh, yeah, cassia, right, right. The okay. gum out of the tree, whatever. But okay. that sap and that tree itself. Oh. Uh. So, first of all, it's so ancient. You can find it in the depiction, in the, in the, in the wall of these depictions in ancient, in, in, in ancient Egypt. And they're going to these tree goddesses, but you can recognize this. You can recognize what tree it is. Okay. Right? But that tree, if you look up, there was an article, like, not, I think a week ago, in, in um, uh, probably in one of your presses, in the UK, somewhere, BBC, somewhere, talking about the, the money. I talk about how they're using the tree to line the Sahara Desert to stop the Sahara. Ah, uh, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that, yeah. That tree itself, of what it can produce in terms of industry, you can have, you know, African diaspora business, and I keep saying African diaspora business because I don't want to think it's just a U.S. thing. Yeah. Can- Can- black people are in Canada. There's more black people in Brazil than any, yep. any you know, yep. even in the United States. But you can have these types of business relationships that people can have manufacturing agreements with. But if you have, you don't have a stable way in which people can, you know, send money back and forth yeah. with these things. Even in the Caribbean, there are, there are Caribbean people in the United States and Canada that can't even do business with their own, you know, heritage, you know, their mother's land, their father's land, or whatever, because of Frank Banks freezing, uh, terrible you know, money laundering. You got you got banks working like judge and jury, doing you terrible, know, doing you know, ridiculous stuff, yeah, to prevent people from doing lawful business. So it ha- blockchain has to be the solution for that because up until this point, we didn't have a solution. We ha- you had to either use some antiquated system or the quote-unquote the most progressive solution is what the central banks offer, and the central banks are not us. So if you're saying now we can build a monetary system on this blockchain, 
and do have banking services on that using cryptocurrency. Well, dad bought it, the, the African, small African-American banks in the United States, and, and whatever it was in the Caribbean, need to get together and get on it, but they need the funding to change the infrastructure. And then they need to fight like hell to tell Europe, United States, Canada, to mind their damn business. <laughs> you do business with us, you do business with us rightfully, but you don't now. Just like you shoot, you already got uh, finally Barbados kicking the queen to the side. Sorry, right. but but it's, it's to the point now that they're like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, that we're maintaining this. That it's nothing personal, but why are we having all this deference going? And we here in the Caribbean, we're not solving our own problems. Crazy. So you you people have to look internally and and, and solve those type of global things because you know. I've never been on the African continent, but I've been to the Caribbean many times. You know, my husband's family is from there. Mm. And there's lots of stuff, even in the Caribbean, they'd be like, I, I just go around and be like, wow, this would be a great American product. I could see yeah, Americans would love to have this cool. soda or this candy. Every time somebody goes to the Caribbean, I'd be like, bring me back some ginger mint, bring me some pepper sauce, bring me some whatever you sneak in the country. Because Sometimes you can readily get it here. Uh, mm. You know, if you go to certain Caribbean nations, it's not as bad as, as it was years ago. You can, but you got to go way out of your way to get it. But there's certain things that could be Pan-African. But they've locked us out of so much stuff. But they don't lock other peoples. You know, Nestle is still a European country. I think the last time I checked, mm. and they're taking all our water. So, <laughs> so they're taking all our land to drill for, for water. So, European companies, some European companies and some Canadian companies to be considered pan uh, United States pan American, but you don't you don't want a Caribbean brand and you don't want an African brand. That makes no sense. In this in this country, we've been stolen. Our stuff has been stolen so much. We don't even have a, a fried chicken franchise. Deirdre, on that note, can you just tell people where they can find you, where they can connect with you because you have so much to say so much so much gems where can people i'm a long time veteran on linkedin.com slash in and it's just my first name d-e-i-d-r-a otherwise you know our group is on facebook black people and cryptocurrency there's a page but there's also the group the group is where most of the activity is you can join the group and then just you know you know tag me there um mm. if i'm not responding um and you know also dm me or whatever those are probably the best ways to kind of you know in terms of initial reach out to 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 contact me thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge and experience i've learned so much from this conversation i'm sure the people listening will learn so much too take care wow what a conversation this is almost a conversation i can't even give a conclusion to we've got to watch and see how this unfolds over the next sort of 10 20 30 years Deirdre is a well of knowledge so many gems so much experience the two major things that stuck in my head were you know, the fact that with nearly two billion don't quote me on that but two million two billion people of african origin uh, there is no sort of noticeable global brand. Um, if there is, guys, come back to us. Come back to me. Let me know what it is. But, I mean, at least a fried chicken brand. Come on. Nah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a valid question to ask. And also, second takeaway for me is around sort of the psychological factors or blocking 
black money or black wealth uh, being invested into some of these uh, black startups companies. So we always hear these things about sort of black people supporting black businesses and there's been sort of a major push in 2020 and I think, it, you know, it's been around for ages where people are trying to encourage uh, uh, the amount of commerce which is done with black businesses and and, and, that, and I think that that's turning a corner but investment into uh, black ideas is probably where we're seeing a breakdown and when I say investment I'm talking about black money going into these ideas I, I mean I also feel a lot of her views are shaped by her surroundings and by that I mean obviously she is from the US and let's keep it real US is a really racialized uh, country um, and I'm not saying that UK isn't obviously UK has its own issues but um, let's just say they, they can talk about racial issues in a way that we haven't really and we'll probably get to a point where we can do that but you know it, it doesn't change what she said the majority of the things that she did mention can be backed by facts and data you don't have to go too far to look I mean two things I would call out as as um, the continuation of colonization is you know how sort of Haiti as a country has been treated after sort of gain, gaining fighting for their independence and the whole world has kind of stood by and watched Haiti kind of being brought to his knees for, for, for centuries um, and the whole world has stood by and watched that and also point out to the fact that um, eight African countries, I think it's about eight, still have their monetary supply controlled by France, which is a European country, which is beyond belief. And that's colonization in a nutshell. I mean, the fact that the West African CFA franc can't even be used in France as legal tender, I think that just tells you all you need to know. All right, to close out, I'll just say, you know, Things like Jack Dorsey spending six months a year in, in on Africa and the African continent is fantastic uh, for the development of tech on the African continent. Uh, but we've got to be mindful that it's partnership. And I do like Jack. And, and just one update is since we've had the discussion, Serena Williams has since pulled out pulled out of her investment in Coinbase. And I think that's directly related to um, I've forgotten his name now, uh, the Coinbase guy. Uh, I think that's directly related to his stance on the Black Lives Matter issue. Brian Armstrong, that's it, that's his name. Well, I'm pretty sure that Serena Williams will be probably looking for more diversity in where her money is being directed into. So I'd like to see how that unfolds. But anyway, guys, it's been a, a great show. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope you have too. I hope it's left you with lots of questions. As part of the show notes, I'll attach links to uh, Deirdre's articles and links to her site. Um, so reach out to her, talk to her. She's one of those people, she's an open book, um, but <laughs> she'll give it to you straight anyway. Thanks for listening. This is Genesis Block Education.